0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sound of Play. It is
1: a night of the Climb, 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 climb,
0: Every Wednesday in Sound to Play, we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And joining me, Leon Cox, in Sound Play 90, which is a special edition kind of thing, we have Carl Moon. Hey, guys. And Mikhail Croder. Hello, hello. Welcome both. So... Uh, since Ryan started uh, hosting, co-hosting Sound of Play with me, he's uh, he's always been very keen that we do something special for each 10th uh, show. Uh, and between us, we decided that I would take this one, number 90. And uh, I just thought, well, the clue's right there in the name. Let's do some tracks from 1990. So it's 1990. I've got terrible hair, terrible acne uh I've never laid with a woman uh and uh it's yeah the the 80s are past and um yeah I do remember I was 80 I turned 18 in in 1990 so I do have a lot of memories and I've brought some uh, some tracks that remind me of that time they're not necessarily all like my favorite pieces of game music they are uh, pieces which are evocative to me and I'm sure they'll be nostalgic for some of the listeners too uh I'll talk some of the things I remember about 1990 as we go along. But uh, Michiel, you're nearer to my age than than Carl is. What do you remember about the 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 dawning of the new decade, if anything?
2: Yeah, I was about 15 or 16, I'd say, a plucky plucky little fellow. I remember it uh, being a. It feels like the the shadow and the, uh, the you know the, the Cold War anxiety had fallen off. Uh, on yeah, Our yeah. collective shoulders somehow. So it felt. More light and, uh, and positive and and uh, optimistic uh the 90s, the beginning of the 90s to me.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. We've had an interesting conversation about this uh, among the team and on the forum at com slash forum in the wake of our Gone Home podcast, which is set in the mid-90s. And yeah. it was very interesting hearing those three guys uh, aged t- sort of uh, 26 to 34 or something talking about the 90s in a very different way to how you and I might remember it. And then uh, perhaps, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, It was more from the uh, talking about the sort of the popular culture and and the vibe of the era and stuff. It it gives you a different perspective depending on what age you were. Carl, you were a a young whippersnapper at the dawn of the 90s. Yeah. Uh, You would have been, uh, what, like five or six? Six. Six right at the start of 1990. Now, I do have memories from being around that age. Do you?
3: (laughs) Yeah. um, I just... Gone into the first primary school of my life. I'd just had my first kiss uh, with a girl, and everything was exciting. (laughs) The school was around the corner, but it was a bit further than the previous one that I was in, so I felt like I had a bit more independence. Obviously, I didn't. It was all a big con, but it was just the way things were going. Um, And it was a really strange time because uh, I'm from the north region of the UK, and the definitely n- true. 90s, yeah, it's definitely true. And the 90s, certainly the early 90s, um, weren't necessarily the best time to be around here. Um, there was a mm. lack of employment, a lot of low income. Um, and a lot of my memories are my father working away down south to get some money and, and leaving me and my mother right. or my mother working two or three jobs. Um, so that I could afford to go to school and get lunches and it was very different I mean if you talk to anyone from this region about that time it's not a pleasant time in in the history um for Mm. the for the northeast in 1990 and it's weird because on one hand I remember being excited about being a youth and hanging with friends and having that you know the the break times at school but being old enough to talk about it would have been turtles and 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 the likes of, of playing games in the arcades with friends and then coming home and there being a whole different sort of, you know, my parents are trying to make it happy for me. And, you know, I had a an Amiga to play on and, but there was always that sort of the political thing going on where one parent was away or working extra jobs. And it was obviously a certain time later I found out exactly why that was. Um, but they certainly yeah. my memories was that it was both very positive and very negative.
0: Yeah, you were six, I was 18, so 1990 was the the year I uh, made the jump from 8-bit to 16-bit, and uh, I, there's, a, there's a slight cheat in two ways uh, for the opening track we heard there, which was the title screen from Klax uh, by Matt Furness, who was already a, a kind of veteran 8-bit uh, mm-hmm. and 16-bit composer at that point, went on to do a lot of stuff on on Mega Drive as well, and um, I say it's a cheat because the the arcade game launched just ahead of the home versions. I think they were almost... Um, I think they were sort of co-developed. Uh, Tengen did the... Uh, which, which was a sort of offshoot of Atari, did the arcade machine, and Tech were doing the home versions. And the Amiga version was very, very close to the arcade machine. And the arcade uh, coin-op, I remember seeing it in late 89, but it did not last in the arcades of Brighton. I saw it once, and then it was gone. Um, but when it came to... Uh, the Amiga. Uh, obviously, I didn't have an Amiga until later in the year, but I picked this up as a second hand copy um, towards the end of the year. And uh, I played so much Klax, uh particularly in two player uh, with my friend Neil, who we also played uh, kickoff two and went on to play uh, PGA Tour golf until the early hours. Clax hmm. was a, uh, a match. Uh, it's a match three puzzler, but like like all of those i suppose it's uh, it's also a match four and match five puzzler mm-hmm. uh tiles inexorably rolling towards you at the front of the screen and you tipping them yeah. into a bin basically um there were two different versions on the mega drive as well uh there was a, a, a first conversion which was not very well received and then there was a later second version which was rather closer to the arcade machine um, but I just remember that piece of music. It's not like one of my favourite all-time tunes, but it starts with it is the 90s. And obviously, although I heard it late in 1990, uh, it's still, you know, because at that age, at age 18, from age 8 to age 18, it had been the 80s. And that feels like an enormous, you know, like a huge amount of time, a decade, more than half your life. So for it to be the 90s felt like something new and different and special. Yeah uh and yeah the, so that's that's why i picked that even though like as i say I've, I've probably played tunes that i think are like more magnificent more rousing more emotional but that is like takes me right back
2: yeah it's, it's very very fitting
0: yeah uh now we've got so we've got tunes obviously everything's from 1990 so those who have asked for more uh 8 and 16-bit music should be happy. Uh, I also want to mention there uh, you may have uh, endured the fact that some of the Amiga tunes that Carl and I have chosen are in the super separated stereo that the Amiga does. So it's not necessarily always that pleasant to listen to on headphones, although I used to go around listening to it on headphones. So yeah. <laughs> uh, so suffer and enjoy uh, or, or play it on your car stereo or just pump it out. Around the, around the house and people will ask you why you're listening <laughs> to this weird old music. Uh, but yes, yeah, so there's a few more like that anyway to come. But we've also a got of bleeps, stuff, a lot of bloops, a lot of bleeps and bloops uh and yes we've also got stuff because this was the uh, transitional period as i say the 16-bit machines had been around uh, like the amiga had been around since the mid 80s but it was just starting to get big i'll talk a bit more about that later it was a year i got mine but also um the 8-bit consoles were still uh, very much around even though the mega drive was now out and we'll hear some mega drive stuff later as well um but the nes was still doing very nicely indeed thank you very much Uh, thanks to games like Mega Man. Mikhail, what's this track?
2: Well, Mega Man 2 is uh, one of my favorite games of all time.
0: Yep, we're covering it later this year on Cana Runes.
2: Exactly, so I don't want to say too much about it, but um, I never really got on with uh, everything that came afterwards, because it always Mm. felt to me like a lesser mega man 2 experience in some And there's ways. a lot there's a lot there's of a, it after
1: mega man 2 and, as well and it's
2: yeah. almost fair to say that if you want played one you've you've played them all so oh, yeah wow. <laughs> maybe uh, we won't do the whole series <laughs> well maybe i, I might uh, but um no i just i just wanted to say like uh, there's just something about mega man 2 the combination of the music the stage themes the visuals uh, that that's just pure magic to me and Mega Man 3 when I eventually got to p- even play it because I wasn't really I was c- quite put off by it back in the days when it uh, when it came out mm. uh, yeah like I already suspected uh, failed to capture that that magic for me for the most part uh, but there are two music tracks at least that capture a little bit of that high energy spirit that uh, uh, the Mega Man uh, theme stage themes are uh, are known for. Uh, and one of them is Snake Man, and the other one is uh, Spark Man. So I picked uh, I picked Spark Man uh, after listening to both of them. Um, and also, it must be said actually, um, I wanted to pick something from Mega Man too, but uh, b- because it was l- uh, released in Europe in nineteen ninety, b- but. By that time, it was already two years old, of course. Yeah. So, Mega Man 3's actual release release date uh, in uh, Japan and the US was 1990. So, yeah. there there we are then. Uh, rules are
0: important. Exactly. Ru- the rules control yeah. the fun, as uh, as as Monica said in Friends in yeah. the 90s. <laughs> and, and
2: <laughs> right, and, but it's good also because it picked uh, it forced me to pick outside of my comfort zone. So uh, yeah, here we are then. Thank you.
0: Yes, Fujita. Uh, and that's from the game formerly known as Rockman 3, Dr. Wily no Saigo, or Mega Man 3 in the West. Uh, no problems with stereo there because it's an NES game. So uh, no stereo, I think. Is that right? <laughs> it didn't have stereo <laughs> function, did it? No, the no. Game, Boy? game Boy was their first stereo machine, I suppose. Mm. Okay, so back to the uh, fully separated Amiga stereo. Uh, but uh, And the first of two tracks from uh, a composer who we featured before and both Carl and I admire very much. So this is a game I did not... This is one of the very few Amiga games I didn't play. Uh, so tell me about your memories of Apprentice by Rainbow Arts.
3: Apprentice is a strange game in that I really did not like it. And mm. it, it, from the art to the way that the game played, and it's, it was one of those where the floppy disk sort of quickly got thrown aside. But I always loved the title music And the, I think the main reason I chose this track for this show Is because, well, first of all, it's Chris Hulsbeck Who is, for me, the finest yeah. composer on the Amiga um, And this is, of all his tunes The one that reminds me the most of the Great Guiana Sisters Which is mm. arguably my favourite And one that I've chosen uh, I believe it was on the first mm-hmm. <laughs> Sound of Play I was on um, yeah, and, and it has that sort of slow, steady build up. Um builds up on the left hand side, and then you get that sort of deep bass coming in. Um, just like the Guiana sisters, in fact, it it could be the same beat entirely on the right hand side. And as much as I didn't really enjoy the game, I smile every time I hear this tune because it's it's those sound bites that take me right back to this era. When I remember the Amiga, it's usually the music that I think of first. Um and it doesn't matter whether I like the game or not. It's that style of audio. You know, I, I, I'm the one that people would look at Strange because all my ringtones were Amiga tunes for so the longest time. People just thought I had a really terrible sounding phone um, because Ooh. there was no lyrics and, and beats. But to me, it was always incredibly personal. So th- this was a track I chose purely because of how similar it was to The Great Guiana Sisters. Um And I wanted to get Chris Hulsbeck and I refused to pick a composer twice. I sort of set myself uh, a challenge that I didn't want to pick a game that anyone else had picked. And I didn't want to double pick any composers myself, which is really difficult with Chris Hulsbeck. So I went for this one because I just it has that perfect Amiga build up splash screen music.
0: That is, as many of these pieces are uh, n- called or referred to, title screen or intro or, you know, main title, stuff like that. Because they didn't have, uh, you didn't get OSTs released in these days. Yeah, so. uh, sometimes you would have a sound test that had track names on it. Um, and we'll hear some from those later. But I was yes, going that's to say from that, uh, uh,
2: Yeah, I was going to say that it seemed to be a very common uh, song title uh, back in 1990, yeah. title screen. yeah. yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, they they literally didn't have names. I would imagine in-house the composers would have just called them, you know, apprentice or title screen yeah. theme or yeah, yeah, whatever. If you're looking, um, you had yes.
3: a high score and an ending as well. They were also music yeah. tracks that were incredibly popular. Yeah, yeah. totally.
0: <laughs> So, Carl, uh, you've talked many times and rightly so on Cain of Rince and Sound of Play about the fact that your dad was and is, remains a gamer. Yeah. Um, and so was the Amiga, I assume, given that you were six years old in 1990 and he would have been in his, what, 30s? Uh, uh, 20s. Su- 20. Wow. Yeah. So the Amiga was probably really mainly his, right? Um,
3: it was... Officially bought for me, so if I really wanted to play it, I did get priority on it. It was a gift (laughs) uh, over Christmas. Um, I I believe I've told the story before. Him and my uncle uh, decided to go out and buy these, and and my uncle thought he felt amazing. He had two Amiga 500s under his arms walking down the town. Um, That's right. But yeah, it was was sort of set up by the big box television, cables running everywhere, and yeah, the the memories of a yellowing Amiga. Because everyone oh, yes. had a very yellow Amiga by the end of it, I think.
0: Well, yeah, I think I've talked before about because I was 18, I was smoking Benson yeah. and Hedges, and uh, me and my mates uh, would play for hours and hours and hours on kickoff and then kickoff two, and sensible soccer, and PGA Tour Golf, and clacks, and other yeah. things, pretty much chain smoking Benson and Hedges. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, sucking a polo when my mum came home as if that would make any difference <laughs> at all. Uh, and, yeah, my Amiga 500 that I eventually sold off to the, uh, for at a very good mate's rates price, to the, the very friend who who we spent hours playing, Neil. Um, it was, yeah, it was disgusting. It looked like a pub ceiling. Uh, my Amiga 1200 uh, I got when I, yeah, when I was uh, living with, my girlfriend at the time, and and I was no longer a smoker, so it doesn't have the same uh, um, patina as um, (laughs) as the the, the A500. But uh, uh, I'm not sure how well it is now because it's been out in a shed for about the last seven years, so uh, it may or may not still work. Uh, I'll update you on that. So um, I just wanted to include one uh, request from the forum. We only had uh, two tracks from nineteen ninety currently in our backlog of of requests from the community. I'll feature the other one very soon. Uh, I think that was from Code Monkey, and that was Puznik. So I'll feature that on a on a uh, on a sounder play coming up. Um, but I decided to go with nineteen because it kind of felt neat to have nineteen from ninety. So. But I also wanted to uh, represent the fact that although it was late in its life, the Commodore 64 was still getting quite a lot of software because it had been uh, such a big seller across Europe, uh, Scandinavia, mainland Europe and the UK. Um, Although people were heading off to Mega Drives and uh, Amigas and import Super Nintendos, more of which later as well. There were a lot of Commodore 64s in homes and Spectrums and Amstrad's, but uh, this is the request we had. So uh, Glenn, Mr. Flavio Watts, sometime uh, guest and regular, contributor to Sound of Play, says Supremacy is a pretty simple little strategy game designed by David Perry during his time at Probe. It had existed on the 16-bit machines for a while before, rather surprisingly, a C64 port appeared with almost no fanfare. The game translated to the weaker machine pretty much intact and had the bonus of this rather nice bit of sci-fi warbling. So this nice bit of sci-fi warbling is by a Dutch composer. Bye, Michiel.
2: Je routeel. Route. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: What Yeah, what he said. Title screen. Hit it. all our tracks today all 19 of them that was from 1990 and that's our, our one and only commodore 64 piece uh representing but we do have a piece later on from a maniacs of noise uh partner of of mr tell as i shall call him because i still can't say y- yaron as well as
2: we'll practice on it
0: yeah right back to me uh and again sort of a cheat but not really this is a 1990 track uh, but not one that i heard until the following year when i got my first mega drive which was also bought for friend funnily enough a different one uh but thunder force 3 by technosoft was one of the first games i, I got hold of when i had my own mega drive along obviously with sonic and madden and uh, all that good stuff uh Mega Drive was already becoming renowned for its ability to handle really decent uh, arcade style uh, ho- scrolling shooters, vertical, horizontal, and other arcade style ports with uh, close conversions of things like, close ish conversions of things like Ghouls and Go- Ghosts and Golden Axe. But Thunder Force 3, TechnoSoft were a real um, sort of, yeah, they, they lived up to their name. They were, they were technical wizards. Uh, there was. Uh, that their games were fast and bright and brash and colorful and soundtracked by this incredibly late 80s early 90s sounding uh shoot 'em up classic japanese shoot 'em up style music so i could have picked um any number of of tracks from this game but i just particularly like the there's a little refrain in this that you'll you'll hear from stage 2 gorgon the fire planet which also has a very cool um sort of ras is it raster effect anyway it's when the 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 pixels all kind of um shift on on their x-axis in in stages to create the effect of of uh sort of waving in the background and loads of parallax sort of hazy
1: fire haze
0: yeah that kind of thing yeah uh so this track's also known as venus fire um there are three composers credited on thunder force three i don't know as the story goes, whether it's collaboration or individual tracks, but uh, Toshiharu Yamanishi, Nausuke Arai and Tomomi Utani.
2: shame that uh, Thunder Force 3 or any of the Technosoft games have been released to uh, virtual console or download services, right? Because uh, yeah, I was looking up uh, prices for the Mega Drive card and it's kind of pricey, which I found odd at first because it seemed to be quite a ubiquitous uh, title on the Mega Drive back in the days.
0: I, n- I never even got to play those games in, in NTSC because I, I had Japanese cartridges but I was playing them on a PAL Mega Drive and which just automatically put them into 50 hertz.
2: Yeah, I have my I have the uh, Thunder Force Gold Pack Volume Two on the on the Saturn, uh, my nice. Japanese Saturn, uh, which has Thunder Force AC on it, which is almost mm. almost the same game, but not quite.
0: That's right. Yeah, I play that on MAME sometimes. Yeah. Obviously, I had four. Uh, I never got around to playing five on the Saturn. Um, uh, but yes, a. I, I guess I don't know what happened to Technosoft. I don't know whether they, you know, split apart, got subsumed into something else, or whatever. But those games don't seem to uh, ever be mentioned or recognised as something that might get uh, any kind of re-release. But I would love, yeah, like a compilation, the whole yeah. series in one pack or something yeah. like that on on a download service with all the modern bells and whistles would be Throw absolutely in Elemental sensational.
2: Master Herzog 2, all those games
0: start getting a bit, yeah. Get a bit expensive then. But, yeah, I'd buy it. <laughs> um, obviously, now M2 are doing the Shot Triggers uh, games for PlayStation 4 in Japan. I got Battle Garaga for Christmas, which is a, a real treat and a wonderful box set. Um, more stuff like that from those types of people uh, would be welcome. But, yeah, the tunes like that, just totally evocative of that era. And, yeah, always good to hear from that totally distinctive sounding Mega Drive sound chip. So. 1990 also saw the birth of a new 16-bit console. The Mega Drive had already been around for a while. Uh, Nintendo latterly entered the 16-bit arena with the Super Famicom or the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, I don't don't remember the US release date, but I know we had to wait until at least 92, I think, before the official power release. Yeah, it was... Uh, uh yeah.
1: 91
2: in the US and uh, 1992 somewhere in springtime uh, in right. Europe yeah it's wow. crazy how long we had to wait for uh, for a console <laughs> release from Super Famicom to Super Nintendo European Super Nintendo
0: that's kind of how it went those days. But everyone I know who... I didn't know many people who imported back in, in those days and it was an expensive business and fraught yeah. with danger because you might have a TV that wouldn't display 60 hertz at all or would play, display it only in yeah. black and white or uh, all, these, all these issues and factors and problems. But some people did and the, the game that... Other than obviously Super Mario World, the game that everyone was talking about was F-Zero.
2: And it feels strange to, to talk about the game and the track because it was only till '92 that I actually got it and played it.
0: That's fine. We can. We're bending the rules a little, sort yeah. of, but and not.
2: I actually had a, a kind of a, a well-to-do classmate, or he was from a well-to-do family, and he was talking about his cousin having an imported Super Famicom, and I didn't even know what it was back in the days. Right. And, uh, he was also talking about yeah Super Mario World and F Zero or Super Mario Brothers Four as they used to call it back then.
0: Of course, yeah.
2: Yeah, so it was only two year, two year, uh, until two years later that we uh, we got the game, and there's there's something you know we we hear uh, tracks like Mute City One and uh, and Big Blue being reused over and over again in Smash Brothers, uh, mm. but not not this one, and I found it, I found it such a striking piece of music, uh, combined with the uh, scenery of uh, Port Town. It's uh, It has a, sort of a nighttime drive feel to it, and um, yeah, there's just something about F-Zero. Uh, actually, because I was looking into uh, this, uh, this game and the music, and games from 1990, I got this real need, this real hunkering to play the game again, and I wanted to just jam it into my Super Nintendo, so I Finally tracked down a copy last week uh, on uh, German eBay for uh, about, yeah for not too much money, and exactly. uh, got got it with the, the box and the manual and everything. And it's funny when you look at F Zero as a series that in the first game, all you know about the characters and uh, the, the drivers of the machines is in the manual and, and uh, on the back of the box in the comic book mm. style manual. Because in the game itself, it's just the machines and it doesn't say uh, say who who drives them or anything like that. And there's something that just, when I think back about uh, my first time playing F-Zero, it's it speaks to the imagination. Um, F-Zero GX is m- one of my favorite games of all time. And mm-hmm. it all, it's su- uh, s- such a favorite game of mine that it makes all previous versions of F-Zero obsolete, in my opinion. <laughs> so that's why I never actually reacquired uh, the original F-Zero. But uh, there's just something about it now that I started playing it. Uh, It speaks to the imagination, the the different planets that you race on. Uh, There's not much in terms of visuals, but what's there is evocative. Uh, The the desert planet, uh, Sand Ocean has this sort of a a huge uh, snail uh, shell uh, uh, looming on the horizon with some spikes on the back of it. Death Wind has a a gigantic skull somewhere in in the back. And Port Town, uh, where, uh, where this trek is from, has, yeah, uh, like a, a nighttime city on the on the is on the seaside. Uh, the the sky is purplish uh, and dusk-like, and uh, the color is reflected in the water around it. And on the horizon, you see this sort of hollowed-out uh, stones covered with with moss or algae. Uh, and uh, in the inside of the stones, you see uh, like uh, houses with little lights out of the windows, piled mm. on top of each other, like little mm. community communities in uh, inside rocks far out in the sea. And yeah, it's just it's it's all very atmospheric, and uh, the music definitely cont- contributes to that. <laughs>
0: Miko Kanki, to Ishida, one or both? I'm not sure. Uh, yes, Super Nintendo was uh, the new kid on the block, and it and it was it was. Uh, it's hard to. I know I often say things like this as part of being older, uh, but it is hard to probably get across now just how spectacular F Zero hmm. looked when it when it was running back in 1990. The Amiga did actually have the capability to do that uh, Mode 7 type effect. And I had seen it used in a few uh, applications in a few games, the kind of um, bitmap 2D uh, and then the camera kind of, you know, kind of goes effectively goes over it. But uh, Super Nintendo did it faster and with more colors, basically. So it was it was spectacular.
2: It's really funny you mention it, actually, because I've attended a few demo scene events in uh, in Europe uh, when I was working for Commodore, and uh, there of were course. people. I always forget you worked
0: for Commodore as well as Nintendo. Yeah,
2: <laughs> and there were people uh, there, like different uh, code groups or uh, demo scenes who actually managed to squeeze sc- uh, like Mode Seven style spread scaling effects out of uh, uh, the Commodore sixty four. Even yeah, it was really insane to see.
0: Yeah, the demo scene was the birth of so much uh, technical wizardry. Yeah. Uh, some of the stuff uh, that, that people were doing with eight and sixteen bit machines. Well, and they still are. There's there, the, as well yeah. as um, challenges on modern. Um, you know, there's the what is it like the eight K challenge or so, or the one K challenge where they try to exactly in working, yeah, working games. Yeah. It's completely insane, but also people are still making games for. Not only machines as recent as Dreamcast, but also uh, Mega Drive, Spectrum. Mm. You know, there's still a still a really thriving uh, homebrew scene, which is uh, fantastic. (laughs) Talking of the Amiga and its technical wizardry, there's a little game which lent its name to uh, (laughs) well, it's lent its name to a whole bunch of stuff, really, in in later life. But this is where Unreal began, right by by AudioLogic Systems. For for Ubisoft,
3: yes, the mighty order logic Systems that released one game, um, yeah, this <laughs> one <laughs> called Unreal, um, and it was a, it, it was a strange game to play. It was very like mm. uh, Panzer Dragoon style thing, back back of this flying creature flying through the world, and I just remember this being an absolute pig to play on a joystick and an Amiga without it feeling responsive enough. Um, but it looked rather wonderful it had, and it sounded even better. I mean, th- this music is the style of music that I really do enjoy. Um, it's very, for anyone who's not heard it yet and is about to listen to it, it's along the lines of the kind of soundtrack that you'd hear to Risky Business, um, very mm. Tangerine Dream style um, electronica, sort of light electronica music. And it's absolutely beautiful, the fact that this was on an amiga s- still blows me away um what what could act what could be done with it this i mean it's creatively titled main theme, so changed up from title screen a little bit uh, it sounds a little bit posher, <laughs> but it it's it it's a very long track for an, for some amiga music um the majority. Mm tended to be around a minute a minute and a half and this one would just go on for ages and it's a track that stuck with me from the first time that I played it because it sounded so different to the majority of tunes that you would hear on an amiga it's um for everything that I love the amiga for this wasn't because it was more the exception than the rule for what you heard um and when that is done really well it does tend to stick with you so it's always been a long favorite of mine from the Amiga era Um, and it just it still blows me away now
0: So that's the main theme from the original Unreal, uh, Ubisoft's property, right back there in 1990. So that was composed by Charles Deenan, who was uh, one half or one part of Maniacs of Noise with Yeruntel. Yeah, and I think, I think he composed that one on his own, but uh, yeah, fantastic pick. Something very different mood-wise. And again, this is a bit of a cheat because actually not only <laughs> is this piece from, I think, 87, the original Rainbow Islands yeah. coin up, um It was... Was it 87 or was it later than that? Anyway... I think it was
1: 87.
0: Uh, yeah. So Rainbow Islands, sometimes subtitled the story of Bubble Bubble 2, uh, had a protracted gestation period for its home conversions and they ended up coming out staggered. It was to do with licensing issues um i think they were originally it had been the the license for the coin-op had been won by telecom soft also known as firebird and then i think that label for some reason yeah i really can't remember the whole story off the top of my head but the point was that ocean ended up picking up the rights to release it on home machines in the meantime uh these various uh eight and sixteen-bit teams, including uh Graft Gold, formerly known as Hewson Consultants, Andrew Braybrook and Steve Turner, who had made a load of legendary eight-bit games in particular, uh including Paradroid and Iridium, but also some 16-bit stuff, uh, they did the coin op conversion for Rainbow Islands. Now, um it was Not arcade perfect, of course, as was often said at the time. Uh, It it ran at a slower frame rate, which which isn't really noticeable if you play it now. Uh, It's missing some of the secrets, uh, three secret islands in particular. But despite that, uh, it was a truly astonishing conversion of what for me is still one of the greatest platformers ever made, certainly in yes. terms of depth and appeal. And it, it takes a lot of knack to get used to. It's got a weird jump. It's got weird mechanics. Um, but uh, as with its predecessor, Bubble Bobble, it, I, I think it's a, a genuinely timeless work of genius. And so back to the, the subject of the Amiga kind of becoming a big thing. Uh, the Amiga had had its first sort of... Uh, real big um, wave of uh, starting to take over from the eight bits at home with the, I think it was, was it called the, it was called the movie movie mega pack or something. Anyway, it had Batman, the movie oceans game again, and some other stuff. It was, it was tied in with the Batman, the huge tentpole release of the first Tim Burton Batman film in Mm. 89. And that had, that had been uh, a big deal for Commodore. Um, They'd obviously, I think they'd hit the, the, comfortable price point which was I think £399 <laughs> uh, which was a lot of money in 1989. But isn't gaming
3: expensive now?
0: Well yeah exactly uh, but yeah there's people up in arms about this fact the Switch costs two, 290 or whatever um, but yeah imagine that as when your average wage was probably about uh, £400 a month or something I'm plucking that figure out of thin air. Um, so uh, an Amiga would have been an expensive thing to buy back then. Technology was just more expensive. there Anyway, the following summer, 1990, uh, I turned 18. It was my 18th birthday. So my mum was prepared to spend a little bit more on my birthday than usual. Um, and although she wasn't able to afford the entire thing, she contributed, uh, I think, half or something towards my flights of fantasy. Amiga pack, which had Escape from the Planet of the Mo- Robot Monsters, which was uh, another Domark Tengen arcade conversion, uh, F29 Retaliator, uh, which was a very uh, high end but rather buggy uh, full 3D solid polygon flight simulator, and Rainbow Islands. Uh, so I had played the coin up, I've managed to find one coin up, uh, not in Brighton, but in Lansing, which is a little way along the coast, and uh, I thought it was incredible. Mm. I uh, couldn't believe we didn't have one in Brighton. And to have this game at home was just such a thrill and a treat. And so this music, it's not uh, its not the most uh, delightful necessarily piece of music you'll hear today, <laughs> but it's certainly an earworm. Um, the original was by hisoyashi Ogura. Obviously, it's very heavily based on Over the Rainbow from The Wizard of Oz. Hence... Uh, when this game does get re-released now, occasionally they change the music or they um, they rip out certain melody lines, so it, it's never the same because they're concerned about uh, yeah. about uh, legal action. Um, but uh, this Amiga version of the tune was converted by Steve Turner, and this was not only the soundtrack of From June. Uh, 1990 to the end of the year but also most of probably the next five or six years while I while I continued to play this incredible game until I got the uh, the PlayStation um, and Saturn versions which followed so it's it's brief briefer than that summary was and that story was it's uh, it's the main theme from Rainbow Islands <laughs> Now another machine to be featured. This is well, it's two in one kind of uh, because it's uh, Neo Geo AES, which means it's also a coin op, an arcade machine. It's the same code. Uh, nineteen ninety was, I guess, the Neo Geo had already been around for a couple of years at this point. Uh, and no, for most of, I think of... it
2: was. Uh, I think it was released early nineteen ninety.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Good, good the, knowledge.
2: The a- AES at least.
0: Okay. Well, that makes sense because yeah, Magician Lord was um, yeah. I remember Magician Lord being quite an early title and yeah thinking about the neo geo obviously lasted for quite a long time because it was so high end at the time um but i didn't know anyone who had we're talking about the price of amiga as well (laughs) um it, it it would it was half the price of an amiga to buy one neo geo aes game and i'm not even joking
2: <laughs> yeah uh, but no, they've, scary, o- they've only it? gone more up more in price now
0: <laughs> yeah well totally so uh, did you play this at the time in the arcades did you know anyone with the neo geo michiel
2: um no um i actually came across uh this title in a magazine in uh 1990 so mm. uh I was on a on a holiday uh in that s- same year I was on a holiday with uh with my parents and my brother in uh in France. Uh, we were staying in a small village uh, somewhere either in Normandy or no, I think it was more down more down south of Vendée. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh it's also the place where uh where I f first came across my beloved uh coin up platformer Toki. Um, oh yeah. And mm. uh in uh um uh, a bookstore i uh, bought a, a magazine called uh, console console plus uh, which was basically um, a french translation uh, of uh, mean machines so mm. they, they republished about half the content of mean machines and then added some of their own content to it namely mm. a lot of uh, import uh, titles for pc engine and uh, neo geo and um uh, that magazine must—I must have uh, read it to pieces. Uh, like it had a, it had a lot of Super Famicom stuff in there as well, and almost every title in there with really beautiful, bold screenshots. I endlessly obsessed over, and I made it a mission in life to play them all, uh, hmm. which I did eventually with Magician Lord. When I when it came to the the Wii's uh, Virtual Console, uh, it has lost its luster a little bit over the years uh, in terms of visuals and uh, and everything. <laughs> Uh, But it's still quite a fun game, I find. It it always feels to me a little bit like the missing link between Ghouls and Ghosts and the Revenge of Shinobi. Mm -hmm. And then you have all the the different uh, shapes or or characters you can morph into. Um, And the first track of the game, The Dale of Evil Gods, the the one that we're going to listen to now, is uh, very dark oppressive but at the same time uh energetic and uh yeah driving uh it it drives the action forward but it also goes to show that for as much praise the, the Super Famicom or the Super Nintendo got for the way it used samples and uh drove uh, video game this the sound of mu- video game music forward uh the Neo Geo was very impressive uh in that aspect as well as just the, if if you listen to the depth of uh, of the soundscape in in this uh, particular track, but uh, yeah, also uh, games like Fatal Fury come to mind, which had really uh, layered uh, l- layered soundtrack full with even you know, folk vocal effects and uh, a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Magician Lord and uh, Dale of Evil Gods by Yoko Watanabe, Hiroaki Shimizu, and Hideki Yamamoto.
0: Gods. they live in a dale I didn't, didn't know that or stage one to give it yeah. its uh, m- more uh, matter of fact sort of a name
2: you never know with uh, SNK's brand of uh, English maybe it should have been a veil of evil gods I don't know
0: <clears throat> a real change in tone now for this pick of Carl's uh, did you actually have an NES Carl back in when you were six years old in 1990 or are these, uh, is this something you've, uh, you've arrived at later
3: I did get an NES at one point I had a import Japanese Mega Drive um, and I decided after playing the heck out of it and struggling with so many games that wouldn't work on the system um, it was always a bit hit and miss you'd never really know and it became a bit frustrating having to travel back to shops because this copy didn't work let's try another one Um working sort of in reverse EU games on a Japanese system I decided to trade it for a friend's NES Um, and the NES was even Mm. flakier so that was a terrible decision in my life Um, so the times I could get the NES to work uh, it was great because I could play it but most of my experience of playing NES's were actually other people's sadly but I did own my own Um, I never owned Pictionary on it though which is a bizarre thing um, I can't imagine
0: it working terribly well uh, no. on an NES <laughs> uh, controller. Uh, not that it matters, because this is a music show, and we're talking about we, it's Tim Follin But, uh, but yes, did you? Did, so did you play Pictionary around somebody's house or something? The real game on the game? NES? No, I've never the, on the <laughs> NES. No, no. Okay, so you just like this tune?
3: Yeah, it's Tim Follin is one of the sort of great composers of the sort of late eighties, early nineties. Um, we've covered him several times on the show, and I was—I was, had three of his tracks um, sort of in order that I was going to choose, Equinox, Silver Surfer, and this one, but I went for Pictionary because, first of all, I chuckle at the fact that there's a Pictionary game on the NES when it's so simple to play Pictionary without actually buying the game.
1: Yeah. Um,
3: and secondly, because this tune is far more upbeat... <laughs> Funky than a, a Pictionary game has any right to have. Um, and thirdly, because much like your Rainbow Islands pick, I do find it amusing when there's clearly unlicensed samples of music in there. Um oh, really? which they? was mm-hmm. is a very common thing with Amiga games. Uh oh, less yeah. seemingly less so with the NES, but There is definitely a faint hint of Queen music in this tune.
0: Actually, you're right, yes. (laughs)
3: Um, And the fact that Tim Follin was the composer, and this is the case to use some unlicensed sample music on a Pictionary game on the NES, just was too bizarre for me to not choose. (laughs)
0: tim Follin, and possibly freddie mercury roger deacon etc uh, my next pick is all about atmosphere really uh, it's not a piece of music that i've listened to over and over again since like i have with some of the, some of my other picks uh, it's from uh, really a, an animated introductory sequence from a game from bullfrog um, and I don't, uh, Peter Molyneux, I don't think was the lead on Bullfrog, but obviously he was involved. And this was from a time 1990 when, uh, the involvement of Peter Molyneux was generally, uh, you know, he was, <laughs> he was considered, uh, a trustworthy, uh, a safe pair of hands. Uh, <laughs> he was going to bring you something innovative and different. And, uh, I got Powermonger for Christmas of 1990 from my mum and I, uh, I'd already played some Populous, which I quite liked and I found also found atmospheric, but I found that the the game was a little repetitive, to be honest, and uh, it didn't seem to change very much. Whereas Power monger I, f- I found the idea of being a kind of army general and having to look after my people in that sense, rather than being a, a deity looking down at them from on high, somehow more appealing. Um, again, you need to kind of to an extent, put yourself in a mindset that there hadn't really been too many uh, accessible strategy games or RTS type games at this point. Um, mm. Dune 2, which was the game that kind of gave birth to command and conquer hadn't even happened at this point so to have a deep strategy game that wasn't just uh you know um kind of icons and impenetrable uh, uh grid-based or hex-based play was was really something so this was actual polygon landscapes and you had actual troops that you could gather up and move around it was it's kind of formative of the technology that they would use later in um, black and white and things like that which was i remember being incredibly impressive on a technical level 10 years later uh but anyway it was it was winter it was christmas uh i was 18 years old and this really captured my imagine, imagination this intro piece uh which depicts a kind of messenger um, traveling across these uh, barren, war-torn lands to to deliver news to uh, to your your titular monger character. Mm. Um, interesting, slightly sad story. The, the, this music was written by uh, Charles Calais, a French composer uh, who suffered with the disease is called brittle bone disease. Commonly, it's mm-hmm. osteogenesis imperfecta Very um, from from his childhood. So obviously, he would have had to. Uh, you know, he would have been through a lot in his life to get to this point. And sadly, he only lived another five years after he wrote this tune. He was married to an opera singer, I found out today, uh, and he and his wife were members of the Scientology Church, which, you know, I'll make no further comment about. But, uh, but whatever <laughs> helped get him through the day. Uh, so, yes, uh, in honor of the late Charles Calais, this is the intro to Power Monk. frog and ea yes that was, a,
3: that was a great game as well i mean i probably i got on with I megalomania think, yeah, a little was bit amazing. better than i did power Manga, but i always loved the interface to power Manga, the whole round the table with the raised sort of that was map very cool. in the middle it was really good yeah I, it, it's the kind of thing that i think like augmented reality when that becomes a thing we'll get that kind of hmm. implementation and it'll work really well
0: yeah i suspect it would actually to play amiga power monger now would be almost impossible oh, uh, uh, yeah. in in so many ways but uh, but back then i it, it me and my my and another friend called mark we used to work at a burger bar on a friday or saturday night and finish at midnight or one o'clock and he would come back uh to mine and we would play power until like four five six in the morning it was awesome
2: yeah nice
0: so next up, back to the Mega Drive. And this uh, is, I, I don't know why I've never played this. I love the developer. I love the series. I've never played uh, Fire Shark, which is uh, the, the sequel to Flying Shark, basically. Mikhail, yeah. though, you've you have brought this tune, which sounds exactly like the music from the game that I love so much.
2: yeah. <laughs> Uh, I actually wanted to pick uh, music from another game, uh, Zero Wing, by the same developer. Uh, ah. because it has a really great and uh, very underrated and uh, underplayed soundtrack. Uh, but and a, and a famous meme, lest we forget. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't even want to mention it. It's so, so famous, I just wanted to gloss over it. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, so the, the Mega Drive version of Zero Wing I'm talking about, of course. But uh, that was released one year later in 1991. Mm. Whereas this one, uh, uh, Fire Fire Shark, uh, came out uh, in its original Mega Drive release in 1990, uh, and I um, I heard you speak about it before that you love the game so much and that you've uh, played it a lot. And I actually picked it up uh, last year at an <laughs> a retro game convention. Right. Excuse, me, excuse me for using the word retro. And, uh, it's okay. <laughs> it's alright in context. In context, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, well, it was it was kind of uh, affordable. And since uh, uh, shoot 'em ups uh, and also Mega Drive shoot 'em ups are usually pretty pricey, I yeah. thought uh, I had to quickly buy it before. Uh, I uh, could uh, I lost the opportunity, and I've uh, from uh, yeah I've, I've played it quite a bit actually uh, since then, and I enjoyed it a lot. It's one of those shooters that seems that lulls you in a false sense of security, where I feel like I'm coasting through the game. I'm, I feel like I'm invincible. I'm going to once you see it, and then this sort of. Uh, yeah, my my, I get overconfident and I get sniped by a little bullet uh, that I didn't see coming from somewhere, and uh, yeah. But it's it's a very enjoyable game I find, and uh, uh, one thing that um, stands out to me about it as well is that it's uh, the stages are pretty long for an arc mm. for a, a shooter born in the arcades, and um, so the f- the, f- the track that we're going to listen to is actually the first track you hear when you when you st- uh, press the start button, and it goes on for quite a while and it also gives because the length of the first stage it's yeah you you get to hear uh, the track develop it's it's not a short loop it's uh, yeah it's quite involved actually and um, I think also it really contributes to uh, the fun of the game because. You know there's there are bits in the first stage and later on in the game where the, where it gets repeated where there's not a whole lot going on and but the, since the, the music is so upbeat and uh, motivating it uh, it keeps you
1: it maintains your interest
0: title track or the first piece that you hear or fire shark from fire shark which in japan is called same same Sami, which means shark 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 i believe and uh yeah the, the previous game in the series w- was called hishazami or hishazami which is flying shark and yeah i remembered i have played that one the arcade version on mame but it's uh, it's its predecessor that i've played the most uh and and, and i still love it but I, I gather that the mega drive version is considerably easier than the the arcade machine probably yeah. if you were fewer bullets on screen and that sort of thing uh, yeah but yes to a plan games pretty much all recommended <laughs>
2: <Pretty Yeah>.
1: much.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, even amazing. wardner did you play that yes yes i did yeah it's an odd one uh there, there were a lot of odd pla- uh, platform type games back then like nemo and wardner and willow and uh, all these things anyway yeah. That's, yeah. th- that's a rabbit hole we haven't got time to go down in this 19 track, 1990 music special, but we have got time for Navy Seals. Uh, was this, I can't remember. I don't, I remember the game existing. Yeah. I never played it. Was it a movie tie-in? It, it's, I think it was one of those things. It sort of passed off on the, the name of the movie, but I don't right.
3: remember it being tied to the movie.
0: Certainly the um, art, the box art doesn't suggest that there was a, a tie-in with, with, with the film. Um, no,
3: which, uh, and Ocean yeah. were one of the few publishers who could probably deal a movie deal if they needed to. Well, they
0: certainly did many, many times. You yeah. Know,
3: so, yeah, so you, know, you would think if it was a movie tie-in, Ocean wouldn't have had a problem, you know, yeah. sorting something out. And this was at a time, you know, this is a game I owned. It's, this is one of the strange ones, and I'm sure you experienced this yourself, Leon, as did many Amiga owners where you would flick through your collection of floppy disks and you'd be looking for something to play, and then something would appear in your list that you don't ever remember collecting, and it's just the disks there, and you're like, how did this get there? Like, I didn't buy it, but one of your friends has left it here or something, and, and it's just in your plastic cart and you're cycling through. And I always remember Navy SEALs being there, and it was an Ocean game, and yeah, I, there was two publishers I tended to try and play their games quite a lot, Ocean and Cygnosis. Um, so I popped it on, and it was one of those games I, I, I enjoyed. I mean, I preferred playing the likes of Rick Dangerous, which was uh, very difficult and drove me mad, but I always found it incredibly mm. charming, but it was that sort of 2D platformer with the odd shooting bit here and there, um, as we had countless of on the Amiga. Um, but it, it wasn't a bad game. Um, I just, It's always one of the ones that's baffled me. I never knew how I accrued it. It just appeared in my uh, in my floppy disk case, but yeah, it's it's a sort of one of those another really catchy Amiga tune. Um, the, you know, it became pretty standard for a lot of games to have catchy tunes, but I really like this one. Um, it's just one that makes me smile, and then I reminisce on you know, playing it um, in my in my room. There's a six seven year old and <laughs> just playing away with the joystick and thinking I was the best gamer to ever exist.
0: Navy SEALs, the title screen again. Uh, that's by a composer I'm pretty sure we've never featured before, who and I know very no. little about, called Matthew Cannon. I, I saw that and I was a bit surprised because
3: normally when it comes to the Amiga era, you, you do see the same ones, don't you? The, you yeah. Chris Hulsbeck and Matt Furness and stuff. Um, yeah, great tune from a suitably surnamed person for a movie called Navy Seals, I guess. Yeah.
0: I think in my head I always got this uh, muddled up with uh, army moves, army moves, (laughs) Navy Seals. Now, the army moves uh, and game over, these were games by a team called Spanish Dynamics, and they were, even for 8-bit times, they made these notoriously fist-through-the-screen, (laughs) face-punchingly difficult (laughs) video games that that were... for me, no fun whatsoever. So I think that slightly put me off Navy Seals. Uh Yeah, so I never played it, but probably completely unjustified. From the serious and militaristic to the ever so cute and Disney, uh, I've featured this soundtrack before. We covered three uh, Mega Drive Disney Sega AM7 platformers uh, on the Cana Rince podcast some time ago. Seek it out. This track, though, I haven't played before. Um, it's Toyland 2 by Shigenori Kamiya, and it is from Cast of Illusion starring Mickey Mouse. Or oh, I love Mickey Mouse. Fushigi no Oshiro no Oshiro Um, And again, because I didn't get my Mega Drive until the following year, I think I did play this round the friend who I ultimately bought the console off in 1990 when it was new. So uh, so that's my excuse. But yes, it is absolutely a 1990 piece of music. Uh, and yeah, even though I was 18 at this point, I still felt very much in, in touch as I guess I still do at age 44 with my, uh, with my childish self. And, um, but I think at, at that age you become, or I, I certainly did anyway, I started to become very conscious of the fact that I was leaving childhood behind or I was supposed to leave childhood bef- behind. And it's, uh, it's quite painful, I think at that, at that age to, uh, to be torn away from being um, a kid to feeling like you need to start being adult and responsible and stuff. And um, I think playing games like this and hearing music like this kind of kept me in touch with that sort of childlike sense of wonder and the feeling of being uh, safe at home during the Christmas holidays and, and all that sort of thing. But this this tune does have a slightly um, slightly melancholic or, or sinister minor key uh, element to it, which I think sort of speaks to that anxiety. So here it is. This is the uh, Toyland 2. another license here now this is definitely a film license uh, so this was uh, Gremlins 2 which was, uh, it was quite a big gap for those days for a sequel it was five years I think between the original uh, the classic 1984 yeah. Gremlins and Gremlins 2 the new batch which um, I don't think was that well received at the time but as a film it's now been kind of um, I think it's kind of respected as as something that was a bit ahead of its time in that it was quite postmodern and self referential and it broke the fourth wall and yeah. did all this crazy stuff Um, exactly but i never played the games related to it because i think mostly the reviews certainly of the computer games were were poor and i didn't have an nes so was this actually considered to be a worthwhile nes title
2: yeah it was made by sunsoft and sunsoft was uh just fantastic overall on the nes
0: true enough
2: yeah so this is actually a game i got on its release in the very same year or maybe maybe the year after because it, yeah i think it's it was released in europe in 1991 actually me and my brother would always uh put our uh, our money from uh delivering newspapers or uh, or brochures uh from door to door we put we would put our money money together and decide on which game we would buy and for some reason uh, I'm not even sure why we picked the gremlins 2 uh before we even saw the movie and in fact playing the game made us more interested in uh, in watching the movie yeah uh, just because it looked gorgeous and it was a sunsoft game and uh yeah it it looked cute and fun and it's basically a, a short but really challenging uh overhead platform uh shoot em up so it's like an overhead running gun with actual uh hopping over pits in it and uh okay. and, and moving moving platforms do you play uh, as gizmo or yeah you play you play as gizmo and you're awesome. uh, yeah you're <laughs> fighting a whole army of uh of gremlins that are taking over the here it comes the clamp the clamp tower the uh, of, uh, of course megalomaniac uh, <laughs> billionaire daniel, daniel daniel clamp uh, who was clearly uh based you know, on no one based on, uh, someone uh, that's mm. been in the news quite a bit li- recently and uh, <laughs> so yeah it's 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 uh, one of the late being released Quite late in the NES uh, uh, life, it's uh, it's uh, and by a very dedicated developer. It's it's a very beautiful-looking game for an 8-bit game, uh, and and uh, unlike any other company, maybe maybe say for Konami, Sunsoft really I don't know how they did it. Uh, one of your previous guests on uh, Sounds of Play, I think it was Craig Craig Wendell. He mm-hmm. also uh, touched upon that about just how much uh sunsoft could make the uh the n e s sing and and the, the the type of bass they they used in their tracks and layered sounds this particular track almost has a a, a, a techno soft type feel to it with its a kind of mm. kind of a, a synth metal uh approach and then uh a very hollywoodesque Danny Elfman type uh, m- melodic melodic motive uh, hidden in there or hidden it's not really hidden but it, it comes out later on in the track yeah it's comp- composed by uh, Naoki Kodaka who was basically the sound guy for uh, for uh, Sons of the mm-hmm. composed a lot of their music for the for the Batman uh, licensed uh, movie game as well for the yeah, NES famous game yeah, yeah. so uh, really 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 good stuff.
0: Was TV set, from Gremlins to the new batch.
2: That the reason why this game popped into uh, my memory so recently was uh, on my birthday uh, about a month ago. My brother came and visited me, and he uh, uh, gifted me the the cartridge that, that he had come across somewhere. And he remembered the good times we uh, we we had playing the, the actual game. He he saw the cartridge laying around somewhere, and he uh, scooped it up for me and uh, brought it to me. So it's kind of fresh in my memory again. That's wonderful. Uh, older or younger brother, is that? Younger brother.
0: Uh, we have another NES or NES, whatever you prefer, track now from um, a another notoriously challenging NES game. Uh, I can't imagine you finished this back in, in 1990, Carl. You were six years old. Although...
3: I didn't
0: play this
3: in 1990. I haven't played this at all. And the, I, this is actually a really right.
0: recent discovery for
3: me, this track, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a Ninja Gaiden episode of Kenan and Rint's upcoming. Uh, even though I'm not on it, it's a fascinating franchise. So it, I started doing some research. and But upon watching the playthrough of Ninja Gaiden 2 on YouTube, on Act 2-2, which is what they creatively titled the track, um, mm-hmm. the music stood out. And I really started... You know, it, it was one of those things where you don't, you're don't, you not aware at first that your foot's just tapping away and then your head starts having a little bob and your fingers are tapping. And I was like, hey, this is quite catchy. Um, and I looked and it was a 1990 game and I thought, well, that's going in the show. So it, it was sort of everything aligned for me to choose this track on this episode, um, despite having never even seen the game being played through in its entirety before. Um, and it's a it's a track by Ryuichi Nitta and uh, Mayuki Okamura um, from the 1990 release Ninja Gaiden 2 The Dark Sword of Chaos, which is a wonderfully overdramatic title <laughs> that we don't get enough of anymore.
0: Dragon Sword Two: The Demonic Sword of Darkness. That's what it's also. It's if you directly translate it from the Japanese, you get that even longer and, and more potent title. Uh, <laughs> but Ninja Gaiden Two, or yeah, Shadow Warriors.
3: They don't try with games titles anymore, do they? They clearly just don't try anymore. This is real effort. This is art.
0: I still get the. I still get the thing where sometimes a game will come out, and I think, how come we've been going? Uh, I guess you know, if you say back to the late 70s that games have been being released in large numbers uh how come they're like how come it took until 2014 or 13 or whenever it was for a game called destiny to come out (laughs) it's like (laughs) that seems and i know i know some games there have been more than one game called certain things and it's created issues in some cases and sometimes rights have elapsed but sometimes a game is announced and you think What? That's wow. We've come this far without a game. And I know there are a lot of words, but you think certain words are more applicable to (laughs) video game titles than others. I Um, remember
2: in the previous generation of consoles where every racing game had to have a a title that only consisted of one word. Pure dirt blur (laughs) fuel blur.
0: (laughs) Has anyone done drift yet? Just probably. Probably. Grid. Um yeah. There you go. Yeah a single word title is Turrican but it means nothing it's a complete nonsense uh i guess it's a cross between tornado and hurricane but actually it's a guy it's a guy with purple hair in a metal suit and uh turrican was um both an 8 and a 16 bit game uh, they were both by uh, factor 5 who would go on to make the the rogue uh, squadron games for the uh, n64 and gamecube famously uh, and finally, came crashing down to earth with that PS3 Dragon game, which Lair was it? See, how come there'd never been a game called Lair before? Uh, anyway, that finished Factor Five off. Sadly, the the, the epic German team behind this game, Tarrakan, and Tarrakan I also got for Christmas, nineteen ninety, along with Powermonger. But this was from my nan. Uh, who I loved very much. She's no longer with us. Your nan
3: had really good
0: taste. Well, she may have had a hint uh, that this was one that I was after. I've uh, been working, as as with many, um, you know, uh, kids like us, uh, we've been working off, off lists our whole life. The difference is now they're on Amazon or whatever rather than bits of paper. But, yeah, uh, I didn't. Actually, I did get some complete surprise games from family members like before this era. But I, I'm pretty sure I said I'm pretty sure I I, I put the I put the word out there. <laughs> Turrican was was on my list. Yeah. Um, my friend Simon had the uh, had the Commodore 64 version, I believe, which was a fantastic cracking 8 bit game in its own right. And in some ways, even more impressive for the hardware it was on. But the Amiga version was a real wow to me in 1990. I think Factor 5 went on and Chris Heelsbeck went on to kind of trump everything they did uh, with the second game, which didn't follow that long after Turrican 2, the final fight.
3: One year, wasn't it? I believe it was
0: a straight
2: annual release.
0: Yeah. Uh, And it wasn't the final fight, by the way. There was a third one. Uh, Not so so
2: good. (laughs) Never the final fight.
0: No. Uh, But I loved Turrican. Uh, I played... This is another game I played for hours and hours and hours upon end. Uh, I remember waiting, uh, making my friend Neil, who I mentioned earlier, wait uh, to start our uh, kickoff two session for like an hour one night while I was playing through the, the later alien Giga themed levels of, of Turrican. Um, mm-hmm. And although I think Heelsbeck, uh maybe he had more room to play in, or maybe he just got even better with the hardware, I think uh, the Turrican 2 soundtrack is still uh, momentous. It's actually. Yeah. It's quite cool going back to the Turrican soundtrack and remembering that there's there's still some really belting themes in there. Uh, and, yeah, I, you know, I kind of went back through the whole OST and the memories came flooding back of, of that that winter, that Christmas and, and the following months. Um, but this was the one that I thought really stood out as a, as a theme that would still stand up today. You could imagine this in a modern game being you know played on higher end synths or or, or even orchestrated instruments and it would still work as a as a driving and bombastic kind of action theme piece so this is stage one three from turrican Pick from Chris Hughes back there, from turrican on the Amiga.
3: Absolutely fantastic, friend. It's sort of a forgotten franchise, sadly. Um, God, I remember when so much turrican As a kid, it was crazy.
0: I did, I, I did too. I mean, yeah, the the, the third one was like ninety three, I think, on the, or ninety four on the Amiga, and it was a much shorter game. And and obviously they mm. they ended up making Mega turricans and Super Turricans which were variants of. of Uh, the games there was also of course universal soldier which was a uh a movie licensed um port of turrican for mega drive by accolade which uh which which wasn't so good um but yeah they
2: they, even even changed into uh changed into the bus host the characters even though there wasn't in a movie basically basically turrican with a with a with a Dolph Lundgren skin
0: yeah, I mean, God, talk about <laughs> classically uh, late 80s, early 90s style action movies. Uh, you've got one right mm-hmm. there. Uh, yeah. Would not stand up to scrutiny. Um, but yeah, I remember, I, I don't know if it was hinted at in one of the end game screes, but uh, Tornado was rumored, long rumored, as a sequel to Turrican. Like they were talking about uh, moving into 3D and, and whatever else. I don't know whether that meant first person or third person or, or what, but. Yeah, had Factor Five lived longer, um, and maybe if they hadn't got into the world of Star Wars licenses, which was presumably pretty worked pretty well for them for a while, mm. um, those games were were uh, big sellers, I believe.
2: Turken did eventually get a, a spiritual successor in Gunlord by NG Dev Team for the uh, Dreamcast and Neo Geo. Okay. But, uh, but they didn't uh, get Chris Hulsbeck uh, on board for the second. No. Team, sadly. Well, that was their first mistake. Because,
3: (laughs) I mean, Turrican had some great music, as Leon said, but Turrican 2, for anyone who wants to listen to a truly great Amiga soundtrack, uh, when when we were putting notes together, the first game I searched for was Turrican 2, and it was 1991, and unfortunately fell outside the uh, pre for the show. So it was a case that, you know, and I couldn't get Turrican because Leon had already beaten me to it. So it gives you an idea of, certainly mine and Leon's thoughts of how the Turrican and Chris Schulzbeck's music stands up uh, in that yeah. franchise. Maybe think...
2: something for episode 91 of Sound of Play. Ryan, mm-hmm. are you listening?
0: Yeah, we're not doing that though. We're not going to, we're not going to go 91, 92. <laughs> yeah. <are we>? um, <laughs> yeah. um, Sound of Play I think...
2: 91 is
3: 91 <laughs> tracks of game music from any year.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ryan, get busy. Um, yeah, I think I, I played the, the the main theme from Turrican 2 on possibly yeah. the first ever Sound of Play, certainly one yeah, of the first Yeah, I believe it years, was, so.
1: yeah.
0: Right, another legend of the time. Uh, this is before he blew us all away with his dance music that we featured many times from the Bare Knuckle Streets of Rage games. This is Yuzo Koshiro on the Super Nintendo doing yeah. a different kind of genre. A very interesting game by Quintet. Tell us all about it, Mickey.
2: Uh, I told you about that uh, French magazine, right? Uh, that I acquired in 1990. And, yes. Uh, ActRaiser was also very prominently featured into it, and it looked amazing. By the time mm-hmm. uh, it rolled along uh, in the second half of 1992, I remember picking it up from the uh, uh, toy store on our way and returning it over the weekend because I didn't really get on with it for some reason or another. But, mm-hmm. uh Years later, I uh, got it on Virtual Console and actually like it quite a bit now. But um, I'm not as much a fan of this soundtrack as I am of Koshiro's uh, more electronic work on the Mega Drive. Yeah, uh, it's uh, soundtrack is uh, a little bit more bombastic and orchestral in nature, uh, but at the same time, it's uh, seems to lack some. many of the tracks seem to lack for uh, something for, uh for me uh save for a few exceptions and uh the track of Fillmore or Fillmoa is uh, one of those exceptions in fact it's so uh such a rich piece of music uh dominated by by uh organ melodies that it immediately immediately uh Calls back to, to Castlevania, in fact. It, it doesn't mm. sound like a very original piece of Koshiro uh, music. But it sounds good regardless. And uh, it is a 1990 track. And it's user Goshiro. So, uh, you know, why, why not listen to it?
0: please venture over to our forum at kainorince.com forum or twitter at kainorince use the hashtag sound a play or the facebook page even if you want facebook.com slash if you want to request your favorites i know we haven't had many listener requests in recent shows but uh, we'll try to uh, readdress that situation in upcoming podcasts but i hope you've been enjoying uh, the themed shows and some fantastic guests and we've got some more coming up for you some shows in the can that uh well i can barely contain my excitement about i could tell you but i think it's fun just to wait and see Uh, But put it this way, you'll know you'll know some of the people that we've we've got uh, coming on sound of play very soon and sharing their own music and the music that inspires them. But yes, do continue to request pieces for our regular podcast. We'll continue to include them. Uh, Your favorites from any era, as you've heard, going all the way back to 8 bit. Uh, I don't think there was music before 8 bit times. Was there anything before 8 bit times? Not really anything worth talking about. Uh, request any anything you like from the history of video games music that uh, that we might share other than the most overtly obviously licensed tracks that were famous in their own right beforehand Uh, please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and leave us an itunes review or a rating if you haven't it really really does help Uh, we also have a patreon patreon.com slash Rince. you can donate a dollar a month in the style of a virtual tips jar uh we plow all the money we get back into making more and more podcasts we shall never stop hopefully uh so yes that was called Philmoa moa by yuzo koshiro from the enix game actraiser uh it's uh, again that was a remarkable um it was a remarkable thing to see in the pages of a magazine like me machines or that french equivalent that you had because we obviously we were very used to games like Action Platformers and we were becoming increasingly accustomed to games like uh you know, accessible God Sims and strategy games like yeah, Powermonger and Populous.
2: Yeah, Populous I was gonna mention, yeah.
0: But the idea that a console cartridge a sixteen bit console cartridge could have a game that married up both side scrolling hack and slash action and a kind of top-down resource management strategy game was mind-blowing 27 years ago and it's still pretty cool i have to say like maybe you wouldn't you'd probably say that neither the the hack and slash platforming is like the the best that ever got and you probably wouldn't say that about the other sections either but as a as a pairing and when you put together some really cool 16-bit graphics and use okashira's soundtrack it's a really i'd say it's still a remarkable piece of software yeah uh, even nearly 30 years on
2: yeah like you said when you look at pages on a magazine it looked like screenshots from two different games uh, yeah together and uh yeah i feel like the platforming uh is Uh, especially the combat is very simple. You have Mm. maybe two variations of sword slashes and jumps and that's about it. There are no sub weapons or maybe, maybe there's some magic attacks that you have that you can limited magic attacks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. But yes, it feels more like early Castlevania than, than anything, I guess. Uh, uh, And I guess super Castlevania four was on the horizon at this point. It wasn't a 1990 game. Hence we haven't featured any music from it uh, because we, Almost certainly would have done otherwise, but mm-hmm. yeah, uh, but we have done before uh, more than yeah, once.
2: Castlevania 4 was uh, released in '91, I think. Yes. in uh, Japan, yeah, yeah, and um, also, yeah, the the god, the god sim aspects are quite fun actually because it has an action, yeah. element as well where you need to fly your little cherub around and shoot uh, shoot monsters uh, to to gain more resources and to defend the people.
0: Mm. It's available on Wii U Virtual Console. I believe. Uh, yeah. I, yes, I have it. It's, uh, it's the NTSC version as well, even in uh, PAL territories. So that's, that's a bonus as well.
2: Yeah, that's good.
0: So before we hear about the final track, I just want to thank Carla Michiel, uh and our one community contributor in this podcast. Uh, but thank you to all of you for listening and for continuing to request tracks. Uh, we have a short piece to close uh, It's like a it's like a little mood piece But I thought it would it would uh, Top off the 19 track show mm-hmm. nicely uh, And this is a composer That uh, you may know under a different name Carl, tell us about uh, this pick From Shadow of the Beast 2
3: It's... we When we said that we were doing a show On 1990 We had to go with a Shadow of the Beast track um, And Shadow of the Beast 2 Being the 1990 game And... Probably the one with the best music, it was incredibly fitting. And although this track is called Opening, it is an ideal way to wrap up the show. Now, it's composed by Tim Wright, who, you know, as you say, may be better known by his sort of alias of Cold Storage. I went and worked on many games, many franchises. Uh, the music game on the PlayStation is probably one where a lot of people sampled his music. Oh, yeah? um, music
0: 2000.
3: Yes, but perhaps the one where he's most famous is for joining the likes of the Chemical Brothers and such in Wipeout um, and signaling yeah. a new generation to gaming and sounds mind blowing at the time as it was. And it became probably more famous for his name called storage after that point in gaming than he did by you know his real name, Tim Wright. But back in the early nineties, when shadow of the beast two had been released, he blew everyone away with the music. Um, I think it's this is a game that's synonymous with Amiga um, and high-quality tunes, maybe even widely regarded as the best music on the Amiga. And it's certainly the one that I recall. Um, It's the first game I remember playing on the Amiga, so it's very close to my heart. And it might be the first game I played, and I remember every moment of the intro to that game, and I remember the music beat for beat that's the impact that this track had on me um it's just so utterly wonderful as you said it's a it's a mood piece and i am so glad that i got to pick this track for this show